Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Carrie Johnson. Your co-host for Forrester Podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Joining us on the phone today is Hector Oalette, head of design for Google Search and assistant at Google to discuss people-centric design. Welcome, Hector. Very excited to be here. Thank you. Great. So um, for the audience, Hector, maybe you can just give a little bit about your background and your current role at Google. Sure. I'm a mix of art, design, and technology. I believe that even today where the business is more mature, the clarity between functions should be here, but it's not. I started studying uh, engineering, and I realized very quickly I was really terrible (laughs) at it. which led me to design. But what I found was that uh, visibility and understanding of what the different functions were trying to do helped me be successful in my role, which is that UX designer. I've been at Google for 11 years. And uh, most, in most of my roles, I've been trying to influence the way we do product by inserting a more people-centric view into the process, usually by focusing on where are those gaps, where are those needs, and how do we go about it. Most recently, leading design for search and the assistant, it's, a, it's an amazing opportunity to understand scale and how do we able to craft products that resonate with people in all these different languages, markets, uh, situations. And um, it's a fascinating role. It's difficult, it's challenging but I really like it. You were on stage at our CXSF forum and where you had mentioned that developing technology that could better detect our moods is something that we should be doing today. So can you dive a little bit deeper on that topic? Yeah, and um, when I was talking about mood, I didn't meant mood specifically. I was more thinking through the terms of how technology needs to evolve the context around people to be more helpful mm. so we can deliver the right message to the right medium, visual or voice, or with the right tone. Currently, most of us that uh, are in the business of doing uh, multimodal technologies, we usually use the visual and the auditory as a duplicate. We usually repeat the same message. But if you look at how we spoke at stage with each other, our body language usually confirms or helps augment the medium of my voice, right? So the message is usually trans- uh, transmitted through my voice and my hands and my, uh, the way I move forward or I lean helps make a different tone or emphasis. So that's what I mean. I mean that our technology needs to evolve to allow us to both understand that when users talk to us or need something from us, but also when we need to deliver something back to them. Uh, I think that uh, at the future that we're heading and we're going to have a bunch of different connected devices across our public and private spaces, it will be useful to have that understanding. So let's say when you don't have a screen, you can have certain type of message delivered with certain type of tone. But you can imagine as soon as, boom, there's a screen right there, you can evolve such message to be able to use to those two mediums. Right now, it feels like the assistants require training on the human side to say, how do I ask the question to fit the technology? Um, I feel like what you're saying is a little bit more, I guess, sensing technology, some of which kind of exists. I mean, if you look at the IVR world, right, there is sentiment testing. They can hear anger. How do you see the evolution happening from 
the human evolving to the machine evolving to the human. Today, with a, let's, let's give a simple example. When you have your phone and you have your home screen and you have a, a certain intention, let's say I want to send a message to Hector, right? So you have a, a very specific, discrete path to go about it. You swipe to the left and you tap on the icon and you tap my face and you type something. So there's a very specific path and all of us that want to send a message to Hector <laughs> have to do something very similar, right? So it's something that we have learned how to adapt to it. Uh, where we're heading, and we as designers or as product developers, we build that path and it's actually in the best of our interest for, for that path to be reliable and consistent. So even though we have multiple uh, text applications, they all follow more or less the similar way, right? So that's usually a good best practice, and we all leverage. Where we're heading is where um, people speak in different terms, and they go about things in different manners. So what we need to start building is in a way to catch that ambiguity, catch that uh, disambiguation, and then map it to that best practices that exist. Because I do believe that over time, people get used to saying things in certain ways, uh, but at the beginning, I might say, hey, text him, or I want to tell him this, or it will be nice if he shows up now. You know, different ways to actually refer to a text. Currently, we don't have many tools to map to those gray areas. So once we understand that gray area and ask, oh, do you want to text him? And you say, oh, yeah, I want to do that. We remember that, and then we send you to the right path. So those gray areas, we don't have really good examples today. Because when they don't exist, right, in the touch-based uh, interfaces, they don't exist because they, the only thing you can do is the only thing you see. What you see is what you get. And with uh, new conversational interfaces, you can just say whatever you want. And that's the beauty, and that's also that's the danger, or that's the complex side of it. How far away do you think we are from actually making that a reality? It's hard to say, because it's not just about a technical hurdle. Yep. It's all about how do we do the product? It's a people process one. Very few teams are staffed towards those gray zones that I mentioned. Mm. And if you think about the complexity of those gray areas are as complex as a feature or a product, right? So I do think we're going to start seeing a shift of how companies invest their talent or their assets to start unpacking that, that uh, gray zone so then people are able to move from features to features in a way that is more fluid. Currently, that movement is usually done by the operating system. The operating system, either in our laptops or in our mobile phones, is the one that helps us start things or resume things or manage things. And this type of um, management has to now be done by other things beyond the operating system. So then people are able to move across a different set of features of verticals, Some people call them verticals. And uh, that's, that's a cultural process thing, plus also technology needs to evolve enough to uh, do a better job in voice recognition, natural language understanding, and so on. Can we talk for a minute about operating system interoperability then? Because even if, to your point, the product teams do a better job, right, of thinking more at the operating system level versus at a product feature level, then you have that feel like you're still burdening humans to understand each operating system, which I guess polarizes folks, right? Is that you have to sort of choose which one am I really going to invest in and learn? And I guess that's the point, right? Is stickiness and lock-in 
through that, it, it seems like we're marching toward fewer platforms, is my guess. Well, I think because it's convenient and it's also comfortable for us, right? Like it's comfortable for us to get used to a certain operating system. So next time we either break my phone like I did on the weekend <laughs> or, or uh, help our loved ones in how to use their operating system, it's useful for them to be similar. It's useful because then we don't need to learn how to go about it, right? It's how to use it. But yeah, people have a certain preference and they stick to it because actually it's really, it's not fun certainly changing. We're heading to a place in where we're all going to have our own version of how we like to have our things organized because that's how we behave as people, right? Love, we have this spirit of coordination, this spirit of helping each other that I'm sure if next time you and I talk again on the phone, our conversation is going to be better and simpler because you will adapt a little bit to me and I will adapt a little bit better to you. So over time, that friction between us is going to be diminished. With operating systems, the, the friction between user and operating system stays usually the same. Sometimes there's a little bit of certain preference you can have, like, hey, it never bothered me about this. Or you check all the checks and say, yes, I agree to all the things you want. You know, those sort of minor optimizations we have. But I do believe we're going to a, a different era in where the tailoring will be way more specific to an individual. At the risk of sounding too existential, though, when we talk about people-centered design, if we're designing for people and can be adaptive and listening to tone, and those actually tend to be more universal and less operating system specific. So in theory, let's say 10 to 20 years from now, switching would be a little bit easier if all of the sort of platforms evolved to that because it, it would just sense humans as opposed to having to understand it's like your current file structure, essentially. Well, yeah, in theory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's why I said it sounded a, a little existential or esoteric for that matter. It's about generalizing what yeah. something can do for you and then do it in a different manner. And yeah, in theory, that's what uh, you could argue that's the same for people, right? Like, oh, in theory, everybody can run a marathon. In theory, everybody can do that. Sure. But why not you go about it? It's not as easy as it looks because it's all this nuance. But yes, I mean, I think that the whole point is technology should just do the heavy lifting. Like technology should adapt to us so we can just use it as a great tool that it is, right? Right now, we have to spend all these tiny fractions of time to learn how to use it. And there are certain tools that are really powerful, like let's call it, Imagine the software to edit a movie or the software to edit this podcast. There's special people that just spend a lot of the time in their careers learning how to use all those tiny little controls that are really difficult to use for the majority of us. And, um, and that's fine. There's specialists in that. But now imagine there's other set of people that we're not specialists in using this technology, but we don't have the access to. I think it would be great when the access to technology to these tools is, uh, maximizes because the usage is really easy. You learn how to use them because you know how to talk to people. So that's what makes, gets me really excited. So maybe you could talk about your work. How is Google using or changing its voice technology to understand a human's desired outcome? Well, I think it's um, hopefully something that uh, many other people do. We do it starting with people first. There's view systems that are able to Understand how to talk to people is a really broad topic, right? Mm -hmm. So you, where do you start? It's like crazy big. 
But it's all about where are those needs and where can we be the most helpful? When can this technology can really help solve a problem, like when somebody cannot use their hands, for example, like when they're driving or when they're walking around or whether there's a need, there's a specific need. And that's where we, we go about it. We do, we talk to people, we understand what their needs, and we try to figure out what, is there a better alternative? And if not, then how we can just introduce new type of technology to help you on that. But I think it's all about focusing on that user need and how technology can be a helpful tool. So, for example, for me now, I'm, a, I'm from Mexico originally. I'm a really heavy accent, right? So now it can start me, which is great. At the beginning, it didn't. And my team worked hard in making sure that that voice that we were listening to was able to be, or the models were resilient enough to understand people like me because now it makes my life easier. And I'm sure there's many other type of accents that we are starting to understand that will make other people's life easier. And if you think about it, sometimes it's the same feature let's say, uh, calling somebody, calling my mom. It's the same feature, but now it works for more people. And that's awesome because that other set of people have the same critical need. I read an incredibly adorable article about the use of your daughter in sort of studying the way that she interacted with technology and assistance and, and how you sort of brought that to your work. Definitely curious about what we can learn from children um, and why they're particularly so interesting to you, other than, of course, I mean, it being your child, um, given that they're going to grow up in such a different way than everyone else. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's a fantastic uh, place for inspiration. Mm-hmm. I think what uh, she has is this uh, naiveness slash lack of understanding of how things work. Mm-hmm. And she sees how people interact with technology and they get what they want. So she wants to do the same, but because she doesn't know what she cannot or can do, she just goes about it. So there's a lot of things that happen with that attitude. One is this relentless optimism (laughs) driven by curiosity. Like, I don't know, any of us, when we do something today or we try something and it doesn't work for the second time, we're just like, okay, I'm going to stop now. And then she doesn't. She just keeps at it. Uh, The other thing is she tries different ways every single time. I mean, she's also developing her ability to speak. So her language is very, um, his language capabilities are very mature. So she tries new things or different ways to call things. And that's very helpful because she's just sometimes trying to break it, but also tries <laughs> new, tries new ways of discovery that I think as uh, adults we don't have. And then uh, another thing that is really useful is she doesn't understand or cares about what chip maker made this or what operating system or what software is running on it or this is compatible with this other thing that's on the other side of the table. She doesn't care or know. So without that, she also goes about it. She doesn't know if this operating system handled this or the Google Assistant or Spotify. She doesn't care. So having that, she just goes and asks for whatever she needs and then you can see how a work in progress goes, right? How you have this hardware layer and this operating system layer and you have this assistant layer and then you have this uh, third-party layer and how they're all trying really hard to work together with each other to deliver a simple thing like play me, um, let it go, her favorite song, <laughs> right? But it's uh, so much complexity hidden, but the way she goes about it seems so simple. And then sometimes I look at, of course it should be that simple. And I just got used to it. I just got used to, 
unlocking my phone and opening an app and looking in my playlist and doing the things that I do. It's actually much better than years ago. I don't know, 10 years ago, that was a really hard thing to do, right? But I think for her, she brings me that inspiration of how to just, the ideal case will be, and then how do we get closer to that? Because many, we see that not just only voice assistants, but also in other uh, products that we design, that people that have recently become online and their first, uh, their first computing device is a phone, and they have no idea why there's a keyboard or why that thing looks like that. And they just like, they don't use the keyboard as much or they find they find it puzzling. But it's funny to see people like, why do you have this layout? Or what are these keys and why they don't make music sounds? Like, it's just really foreign for people to have a keyboard. But for us, it's, of course you need a keyboard. Otherwise, how are you going to type? Right? So it's really useful to start getting inspiration from the new generation because I, I fundamentally believe that our needs are the same. As people, we have the same needs. We always get hungry. Sometimes we get angry. <laughs> we have uh, the need to get entertained, the need to get out, the need to to find new things, the need to learn, the need to be in touch with our loved ones. And that those set of needs are usually very stable throughout generations. What is evolving is the tools that we use as, as a species to, to fulfill those needs. So sort of in that same line of thinking, I'm wondering how do you balance the like known needs of customers or users today and the needs of customers and users that they may not know they have? Like, I don't know what the term is, like latent demand or, or finding that white space. Like, how do you balance that around people-centric design and a product designer? And that's a, it's a hard thing to do. That balance is always uh, it's around doing the right reframing of the request. And uh, it's difficult. It's not simple, right? Some people might want to have something that is very specific and tactical. And I do believe it's all about that long-term and tactical aspect and connecting the tactical to the long-term. Because sometimes people might need something that we can just not build, right? It's just too soon or it's too difficult to build because we don't have the right uh, conditions. So it's a matter of being able to, I like to have this notion of themes that fulfill, that get together into a strategy to know what we're going to build in the long term. And uh, it's a notion of, of reframing. Like an, an example is the most simple thing we do, we do about calling is well, call mom, right? But before we are able to fulfill call mom, we have to say call her name. Right, because we didn't understand what mom was, and before that, we have to be say call a given number, mm. and that example, I think, is um, is similar or tells a story, or sometimes where with customers or people want to build different things, but they're, they're not doable. But if you told them the path or just show the path how it will get better over years, then they will get it. That's one of the questions I was thinking about as you were talking earlier: is this idea of Educating people on what's possible because it's so new still to interact with technology this way. Um, I imagine, I think I've seen the research and we have some of it that a lot of folks are using some of this technology in, in very basic ways. And there's actually a lot more it can do today even mm-hmm. that maybe your child can figure out, right, because it's they're curious, but that 
adults are getting are already starting to narrow down what's possible today. Like I'm going to use this as a kitchen timer to play music or sort of do like a, a few core things. How do you think about educating folks on this complex what's possible idea? I think that's a great question. I feel like we are not doing enough to lean into new ways to education because usually education feels like um, in the traditional software development is something you put at the beginning of the warm welcome mm. or something you uh, put in the settings uh, because actually people kind of figure out because like I said earlier, usually what you see is what you get, right? So if you see a, an icon that has a little sticker, an icon that has a little phone, and an icon has a little bubble, then you will only get those three things. So there's no, and then sometimes we do certain education that is minimal, like a little hover state or a little alert, but usually those are secondary because the screen itself does most of the heavy lifting, right? The mental model of what you can do in a given moment in time is mostly driven by what you can see. And now when we're doing with multimodal or with voice, we still apply the same thing. So we usually have like a warm welcome or we do a very similar things, but it's not enough because we don't have that guiding principle. We don't have that constraining factor because there's nothing in front of us, right? The thing in front of us looks like a speaker, um, but that's not telling me much about how much you can do about the specific thing I'm asking. So we need to change that approach. We need to find new ways in where sometimes might be a little bit annoying, right? Because we don't know when is the best time to say, hey, by the way, I can also do this. I'm like, well, I'm not interested in that. Thank you, <laughs> right? So it's not easy, right? Uh, but it's about being a little more uh, provocative or finding more novel ways to find the right moment to, fi- to say, hey, I just learned how to do blah. Or when you finish doing certain tasks, for example, calling mom, you can imagine after you finish your call, you can say, oh, by the way, in two months, I will be able to message her. I don't know, have you been uh, to um, one of my favorite restaurants is when I, I know that the waiter is giving me something right when I need it. And it doesn't have to be fancy, it's like any, but when they read the situation really well, and then boom, they bring you something. The worst is when you constantly feel this nagging. Mm-hmm. And I think for now, at least the maturity of our products, there's going to be a lot of nagging. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> but we're trying. We should be trying to be better at it because education is important. It's important, and it can be done in a way that doesn't feel like like homework or like uh, like work, but it's actually delightful. It's part of the feature. Yeah, that makes sense. And there's a level of transparency there. Like, hey, you know, sort of sh- sharing, right, with the, the customer or the user, that is so much different than a screen interface or maybe less annoying, but it feels like that makes sense for the the medium, especially with early adopters. No, yeah, and like I said, my previous, um, at the beginning, this gray zone, we also don't build for that, right? So when you say something that is adjacent to the feature, but we don't really have built it, we haven't built the feature around it, so it's able to to handle it gracefully, to say, oh, we cannot do that, but soon, or like in a year from now, or you can try this thing. But uh, we don't build enough things for for what we don't know. We build a lot of things for what we know. Mm. And when you don't build things for what we don't know, then users fail. But now it's a lot of the things is we should think about what we don't know that are adjacent to what the user's trying to do so we can then uh, 
recover that, recover that uh, possible failure and bring it back to something that we know. There's a common thread when we've talked about people-centric design on this podcast, and it usually comes down to focus and resources, which we've touched a little bit upon in terms of firms realizing that they actually need to spend money on it uh, versus pushing out features in a traditional product development perspective. Is that is that fair? Is that what you're seeing in, in general? And how do we get better? Mm-hmm. No, it's fair. It's fair because I do believe the, let's call it the function of, of user experience is still nascent in relationship to the other functions like engineering or operations or product management. I do believe it's newer. And with new things, there are things that you just yet don't understand. So as, a, as an organization goes about and builds things, they think about this new component as a late addition into the way we go about and do our strategies or do our uh, visions. And um, the challenges that I see is about how do you make stakeholders understand that understanding people and going about their needs is not as simple as it seems. And if done well, you can have less resources than the ones you thought you need because there's a lot of duplicity you may have doing or you can just have a little bit more planning in doing things in certain order so then uh, your solutions will resonate with users. Uh, it's not as simple because, like I said earlier, we're nascent, so we don't have enough people experience uh, professionals at the right uh, altitudes of an organization to have those conversations. The thing that gives me hope is every time I have that conversation, it's very well received because it's like, oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> we should just focus on things that people need, right? And I think that's what everybody wants. Uh, but that uh, translation between what we can build and what that thing will be actually used is huge. Hector, you talked a lot about some of the challenges before product designers, but also, obviously, a lot of the opportunities. So speaking to the audience, what's that one piece of advice that you would give product designers today, and how can they have a big impact on the future? A good advice is to not take your label too literal. Mm-hmm. I feel like everybody is a person, fortunately, so far. In organizations, usually as they grow and mature, there's these labels that usually drive process and drive certain lines of efficiency. And it's very useful to go beyond that and make best friends with your developers, with your engineers, with your product managers, with your marketing folks, and understand what they're trying to solve. Because I don't think we do that enough. And um, usually because product designers are horizontal because we represent the experience, we usually are less in where most of the businesses are um, structurally vertical. So we, we are like a glue that connects the experience across our organization. And if people know you, if people know where you're coming from, they usually things go better. So my advice is be best friends with all the other functions when you develop products and try to make a case on not of what you think, but what the user might need. And that's always been very, very helpful for me. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It was super fun. 
If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.